Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, really, really excited about the episodes we have coming up for you here. We're going to be doing a lot of college football, college sport uh, coverage to coincide with the start of the season and some real deep dive stuff. We're not kind of covering current events, but we want to really get into some of the larger structural issues that plague the sport. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman lamb and I'm joined with, by my friends uh, Johanna Mellis and Derek Silva. Hi. Hey. Hi, everyone. Um, so we're going we're gonna to throw it very, very shortly to our interview today, which I'm excited to share with you. Uh, the interview is with Aaron Hatton, a professor at the University at Buffalo, who has a fabulous uh, new book called Coerced about the coercive labor dynamics in college sport and also in other contexts. But before we get into that, I think we maybe need to have a, a bit of a deep dive into the chair. Huh? What do you think? I just like messing with you mostly, but, um, you know, I think what, what we all need is more discourse on the chair, because that's definitely something oh, that has goodness. been uh, lacking from oh. academics right now. Uh, no, yeah, Johanna, what did you think? Twitter for the last few days has just been like literally just the chair, the chair, the chair. No, I, I force fed it to myself so that I could keep up just because I didn't want to miss out on the discourse. It was short enough that I could do that and it was worth it. <laughs> uh, so, folks, thanks so much for listening. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at End of Sport Pod. Um, contribute to Patreon if you have it in you. Uh, subscribe to the show, certainly, if you can. And please rate us, review us uh, on iTunes to drown out all of those one-star reviews that we constantly accrue. Thanks, everyone. And now to Aaron Hatton. Aaron Hatton is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University at Buffalo and author of Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment, which will be the subject of today's discussion, and also The Temp Economy, From Kelly Girls to Permatemps in Postwar America. Aaron, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. All right, I'm really excited to get into this conversation because honestly, your book, although it does not only deal with college sport, um, engages with the, the labor dynamics in college sport, uh, I think better than almost any other kind of academic text. And it really intersects with all of our areas of concern. So there's, there's no one that was sort of a more urgent person to have on to, to talk through, you know, coercion in the context of college athletics than you. And we're excited to have this conversation just as we're about to get into the college football season, especially. So although today's conversation is going to focus on college sport, before we delve into the nuances of your reading, of the campus athletic worker experience via your wonderful book, Coerced, I'd like to take a moment to talk about the overarching frame of the book, which discusses the labor of college athletes alongside the work of prisoners, workfare recipients, and graduate student workers. Can you explain for us how you understand these forms of work to be related to each other and why you thought it would be generative to put them into conversation? Yeah, sure. Um, so. Let me just say right here at the outset that I do not conceptualize these workers as, quote, the same in really any way, right? And certainly not in terms of their marginalization and vulnerability to employer power. Um, graduate students are very different from prisoners, as are college athletes, right? So these are very, very different groups of workers that I examine in this book. But I do argue that when we examine these workers alongside each other, some similarities tend to stand out. 
And so as I argue in the book, um, all of these four very, very different groups of workers experience a similar form of coercion, which I call status coercion. Um, and this differs from the other types of coercion that we kind of just accept as commonplace in traditional workplaces, that's economic coercion, which is really employers' power over money, over wages, the ability to hire and fire or promote or demote workers, right? The the basic tenet of capitalism that Marx identified that, you, you know, you either kind of have to work, you have to sell your labor, or you starve, right? Money is important, and it's important to the workers that I examine in this book as well, and, and their bosses control over their access to capital in some way. But in this book, I argue that these workers also experience another form of coercion that's similar across these four groups, but it differs in terms of the severity of consequences they face. So um, because these workers are not legally classified as workers under the law, right? They don't have typical employment protections such as access to minimum wage or overtime or the ability to organize unions. They hold other statuses. Um, student athletes, of course, are uh, hold the status of athletic worker and all of the rights and privileges and obligations and downsides that come with that status. Same with prisoners, right? No one actually wants to be, to occupy the status of a prisoner. But when you're living behind bars, you need to retain the status of prisoner in good standing. Otherwise, you're gonna face a host of negative consequences. You know, officers have the ability to take away your access to your family through family visits and phone calls, your ability to purchase basic goods, food and services from the commissary, um, the ability to have exercise in um, the recreation area. And so in, you know, there's a lot of nuance here that I probably don't have time to go into here. But what I argue in the book is that all of these workers experience this form of coercion as well as, say, economic coercion, mm -hmm. in that their bosses, their supervisors, whether it's their coaches or officers behind bars or their workfare supervisors in the case of welfare recipients who have to work in order to receive public assistance. In all of these cases, their bosses hold powers over them to revoke their status as, say, athlete in good standing and their ability to compete in elite sports or their, their access to prisoner in good standing and their ability to access all of the really basic human entitlements that become privileges behind bars. So that, in short, is the status coercion that I identify, and it's the common thread that links these four very, very different groups of workers. Yeah, and, and I mean, as the, the title of your book indicates, and as you're, you're indicating here, coercion is definitely this central sort of theoretical strand that animates um, your analysis. And you make an important distinction, again, you've noted this, between these two understandings of coercion, the sort of Marxian notion of economic coercion um, and this different form of coercion grounded more in power dynamics that you refer to as status coercion. In the context of uh, college athletes and college athletics, could you walk us through um, first economic coercion and its relation to college sports? Um, and then how that differs a little bit um, more concretely from status coercion in the context of um, a college sport? Sure. 
Um, and there is a little bit of intersection between these two types of coercion in the case of college athletes um, where money is involved. Um, but because college athletes for the aren't paid in wages, right? Their supervisors, their coaches don't have power over their access to wages per se. Now that said, as we all know here, that the NC2A does restrict their, um, their economic freedoms in so many ways, including their ability to earn, well, until recently, including their ability to earn from their academic success, right? So until pretty darn recently, athletes couldn't say, run a camp in their name, capitalizing on their success as an athlete in the summer and their time off um, and make money from that venture. They couldn't sign an autograph and make five or 10 or 20 bucks from doing so, from their athletic success. So not only are they not paid for their work on the basketball court or on the football field, they also have not been able to capitalize to make money off of their success off the court and off the field. Um, so that is certainly could fall under this umbrella of economic coercion, right? Their, their supervisor's ability to wield power over their access to money. Um, but they also wield power over their access to this um, status of athlete. And, and for many of the um, athletes that I interviewed, they were elite athletes. And so, as we know, for so many college athletes, College athletics is really the apex of their career, right? The vast, vast, vast majority of them do not go on to play professionally. This is it. And this is what they worked for some, you know, almost their whole life to achieve. Um, and so for many, getting there is an enormous deal. And playing every game to the best of their capacity is an even bigger deal. And that affects their ability to, say, be recruited professionally. And so many of them go in with the dream of go on, going on to play professionally, but their coach has power over that. So one of the basic levers of status coercion that their coaches wield is their ability to play at all. Um, so, and as you know, when I would ask the athletes that I interviewed, you know, you know, just tell me about like the types of power that coaches have over you. Sometimes they would even mention the power to not play them because that's just so, basic in this world like like if you if you don't show up to practice you you can't expect to play that weekend if you mouth off to your coach oh gosh absolutely not you like if you're a trouble in any way shape or form if you major in something that they don't want you to major in because maybe the schedule for that uh engineering degree competes with football practice times you better believe you know that you're not going to be able to play and so you're not going to be able to realize the apex of your career, right? Because you're not going to be able to play in any games. You're going to be benched for the season. And maybe your scholarship will not be renewed for the next season or the season after that. Um, so, so their access to the status of athlete, their ability to play, their ability to play in order to be recruited to play professionally, right? So playing time is not only an immediate effect, but also revoking playing time can affect your professional recruitment opportunities. And as those athletes told me, if they're a problem in any way, um, there is a very strong, though informal system of um, 
what you know in graduate school we use letters of recommendation but in, in the sports world it's more like informal recommendations where the coaches will tell professional recruiters oh no they're uncoachable they're a bad apple they don't follow direction they don't do what i say and if you don't do what your coach says for any reason at any point you can be labeled quote uncoachable and professional recruiters may very well stay away from you as a result Excellent. So first off, I love the, the comparison to letters of rec. Um, there still seems to be like a fair amount of debate about um, the purpose of those and whether they're needed or not. But, but I definitely think that's a really excellent kind of and, and relatable, obviously, comparison. Um, now, we want to dive into a little bit more into the interviews, um, as, as all of us do interviews and really care about uh, qualitative research. But I sort of have like one small follow up question. And that is that when you were interviewing these athletes, to what extent were they able to kind of either quickly come up with answers for them? That question about, you know, to what extent does your coach have like power over you? I guess I'm curious, you know, how did you word that question? And also, you know, one, one kind of very common argument for why college football isn't bad for athletes is that, you know, oh, athletes do it because they love it and their coaches support them. And therefore they're like, not, kind of aware of that power dynamic. So I guess, and, and we always say like, you know, a lot of athletes know that they're being exploited. A lot of athletes know this, right? Like if we assume that they don't know this, that's not giving them enough credit. Um, so I guess I'm curious, you know, to what extent um, did you feel athletes were already aware of these dynamics versus how much did you kind of have to draw it out of them? Um, I would say that for the most part, they were very aware. Now I should preface that by saying that all of the athletes I interviewed were former college athletes. So some of them had gone on to play professionally and were currently professional athletes. Others were not, but none of them were still college athletes. I also just want to make note that I did not interview any athlete connected in the present or past with my own university, right? So this was, um, I worked really hard to, you know, make sure that they are completely anonymous and, and completely confidential in that way. Um, so these were former athletes, and I think that is important for their ability to recognize some of the levers of power that their coaches wielded over them. Because as some of the athletes I interviewed told me, they related a kind of transition in their time as college athletes. For instance, as one pretty high-level basketball player told me that when she first got to college, um, she was thrilled. She got to go to an elite school that she would not otherwise have been able to go um, because of her athletic success. Um, so she was so excited for the academic challenge, for the basketball challenge, um, and was just really thankful and grateful to be there. And I think that's very, very common for those athletes who have, quote, made it, made it to those P5 schools, to the elite programs, and and for um, certainly for academically oriented ones to elite institutions as well beyond the, beyond the athletic world. Um, but as she told me, as time went on over the course of her um, college career as a basketball player, she became more disillusioned. She came to see how the, although in her case, the coach, and I think this is pretty common as I talk about in the book, the coach would often talk about how they were a family, how they loved and cared for the athletes, that she did not see that love and care play out in 
everyday terms, in reality. So, for instance, she talked about going through a really, really hard time in college, and she needed counseling. She needed help. She wasn't liking her life. She wasn't liking basketball, and that was really disturbing to her, really distressing. And she was one of the team leaders. Um, and she went to her coach and, and asked to be able to go see a counselor during a practice time. And basically, the answer was no. And another coach at another point rolled their eyes at her for needing mental support, for me needing a little bit of a break to take care of her mental health. And she felt so um, <laughs> infuriated by this and also just disappointed. And, and it, the, the discrepancy between that rhetoric of um, care and family, and we're in this together and we're here to support you, and the reality that she did not feel supported at all. And she, she didn't only experience this firsthand, she saw this again and again with her teammates, and she heard it again and again from other uh, players in, in college athletics. And so for many, they, they related this kind of transition from excitement, kind of a willingness and perhaps naive readiness to accept everything, because of course they've been taught that, that coaches can and should have great power over them, that they have their best interests at heart and, and we're all in this together to win. And the reality of, of athletes, but also young adults coming into their selves and learning how to navigate this world and not feeling supported at all. And I think one of the things that your question points to, Johanna, is a, another kind of technique that makes this process so difficult is this rhetoric of the, the labor of love. And, and the rhetoric of privilege, that you're lucky to be here, that um, this is not a job, this is, this is something that one loves, and, and therefore it's all-encompassing, and you must give up everything else, including perhaps your sovereignty, or your love life, or your um, academic career, your ability to be an engineer. You must give up everything, relinquish everything for this sport. But at the end of the day, many of them did not feel cared for in the process. That's, a, that's an incredibly powerful um, sort of description of those dynamics. And you, you sparked me on a couple things that I just want to quickly interject. One, um, I think like it is really crucial the way you, you highlighted the fact that these are former players for all the reasons you described. And also the fact like quite simply for any elite athlete to do what they do at the level they need to do it at in order to thrive, it's very difficult to have any level of cognitive dissonance, right, over what you're doing. If you really kind of embrace the, the recognition that you are being exploited, right, that what's happening to you is profoundly unjust, it becomes much more difficult to sort of extract the performance from your own body that is needed to achieve at these incredibly high levels, right? Which is, of course, the project of the player. That's why you're there. You've given up so much in order to have this opportunity, which, as you, you've pointed out, is framed as a sort of really privileged thing to have this opportunity, right? Um, and so to, to, to wonder even, to, to, to doubt that what you're doing is right or fair is extremely difficult for any athlete, I think, to sit with in the moment, although some do. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But for many athletes, it becomes much easier once that career ends, once they become the former player, right? That's the moment when for not just a few or some, but like perhaps even the vast majority, it becomes crystal clear what was really happening because there's no reason at that point to kind of compartmentalize those struggles and tensions. 
Um, so that, that was one thing. And just one other thing really quickly, when you were talking before about you know, status coercion generally and the risk, the risk being that um, your reputation as a player, right? The reputa- your reputation might be besmirched by your coach and that could have profound professional consequences. We need look no further than the extremely um, infamous and celebrated example this year of Jalen Johnson at Duke, right? Which is the exact situation that sparked all that Dan Dockage nonsense. But like going back to the root cause, what happened there he ultimately decided to extricate himself from that program. And I, I, have, I, I don't know him, and I don't know the story specifically, so it's not about that. But what I'm trying to point out is he chose not to sort of follow in line and just do what the program would want him to do from a performance standpoint. He decided to extricate himself. And it did have profound consequences for his pr- career. You know, he was, he was projected to be a top 10 draft pick. Um, he wasn't drafted in the top 10. He was, I, I can't remember the exact number. I think he may be in the back end of the top 20. The, the college sports media, the NBA media, what every single story that came out after his decision to stop his college career was about how this showed that he was a quitter, right? That this revealed something about his character. So that's a perfect, spectacular example for not just him, of course, but all college athletes to see. Like this is a, a coach could point to that example as a perfect illustration of the fact you better listen to me, you better do what I say, because that could be you, right? That's the power we have over your career once you leave this institution. That's absolutely right. And and I think that for, you know, 99.9% of athletes, that example, that story is not surprising. They know this. They know this deep in their bones. The whole enterprise is built on the premise, the basic foundation that they do what their coach says, that they toe the line. There is no going against coach. Coach knows best. You might grumble a little bit under your breath in the locker room away from the field, but that's it. And it should be noted that, in fact, a number of the former athletes that I interviewed, people who were no longer athletes, no longer connected to athletics in any way, they express fear to me, talking about this, criticizing their coach. Five, six, seven, eight years after the fact, they still felt that innate fear and discomfort in talking out and speaking out against their coach in that way. That's how pervasive this sense is. That's how deep it runs that you not only you you toe the line, you do what they say, you submit, but that and and you don't talk back. You don't bring attention. You don't bring negativity. Um, to the powers that be, because that's, it, it just goes against everything that the sport is premised on. Absolutely. Now for the book, and just, we would we'd love to hear more about kind of like your methods um, and the, the people that, that you interview to the extent that you can talk about them, of course. Now we know that you interviewed 18 former division one basketball and football players, meaning the sports and the, so sorry, the players in the so-called uh, revenue sports. Could you give us a little bit more of a sense of what kinds of schools um, the, the players have played at? I know you mentioned it in passing, but if you could just give a little bit more about that. And then if you think that um, they're, where they played is relevant to the degree of status co- co- coercion that they experienced. Um, and then a little bit on how, how you can and we can hypothesize the extent to which status coercion informs the experiences of athletes on non-basketball, non-football teams. So, yes. Um, so this was very much of uh, like a snowball sampling situation. I, for, for 
the groups of workers that I interviewed for this book, in each case, I had to kind of reinvent the wheel to figure out how to get to these folks without uh, compromising their identity and, and making sure that they felt comfortable talking to me. So it quickly became clear, for example, that um, not only was I, would it not make sense for me to talk to current prisoners about their labor behind bars because they're so closely surveilled and monitored while living behind bars. It also made no sense for me to talk to current athletes about their lives as, as college athletes because of that fear, because they're so closely surveilled and monitored as athletes today. So I set out to find former athletes, and this was a very kind of messy, unscientific process of just reaching people. And so it was through loose networks. It was um, snowball sampling is kind of you, you get to someone and then you, um, they might refer to you to other people and they might, and those people might refer to you to others and so on. Um, and I did focus on the revenue generating sports, football and basketball, in part because I think that's, especially in the elite institutions in those, um, to revenue generating sports, the, the dynamics, the power dynamics and, and maybe the problematic aspects of the dynamics are clearer, but that doesn't mean they're non-existent in other spaces. Um, oh, but first, in terms of the, the types of schools that these athletes um, worked in or, or were athletes in, there was a whole range. Um, some were very elite institutions and some were um, less elite kind of four-year um, regular old universities. Um, so there was a, a, a full gamut. Um, and like I said, some of these athletes had gone to have gone on to have professional careers, but most of them had not. Um, now, I do think that in the more elite schools and in these revenue generating sports, um, like I said, the, the, the dynamics, the power dynamics are a bit clearer, but that doesn't mean they're non-existent in other spaces. So, for, in, for instance, one of the athletes who um, was a high-level basketball player at a quite elite institution, um, not the one I was talking about before, um, she uh, pointed to one moment, the moment where she was on the team that was a finalist in March Madness, right? So they had gotten to the big tournament and gotten near the end of the big tournament tournament and the players on the team herself included received a watch for their success while their coach received i, I can't quite remember the number but i think it was maybe three hundred thousand dollars in bonus for their success on the court and the, so the discrepancy right is just so could not be clear <laughs> for these athletes who are really kind of at the apex of this already elite terrain um, who were prevented from, you know, even signing an autograph um, and, and, and worked so hard and put their bodies and lives and mental health on the line every day for the sport. And they come out with a watch, perhaps a nice one, um, but their coaches are coming out with much, much more. And so really it was a way of just a way of clarifying the net dynamics so that I could understand and analyze it. But other athletes experience this very much as well. So for instance, in the book, I um, detail the story of Bruce. So he was a football player, revenue generating sport, but he was not at elite institution. Um, 
And his story, his experience from beginning to end is rife with the detrimental consequences of status coercion that that some athletes experience. So there's so many details to his story and, and many are horrific, but in short, um, he started out at a junior college because he couldn't afford to go to anything more expensive. He had no parental support for college, um, but he was a great football player. He worked really hard to get recruited to um, a fancier football school. Um, but it turns out that his junior college coach prevented him, turned away uh, recruiters because they were becoming a four-year school and he wanted to keep Bruce there. He prevented him from leaving. Bruce ended up leaving anyway, but you know, by then recruiting season was over, it was too late for him to get a scholarship anywhere. So he was a walk-on at a regular old state school and he performed great there. He quickly like um, skyrocketed to the top of the charts. He started out as a lowly walk-on. He you know, was quickly the starting player. He was the star of the team. Um, at the end of his first year, the coach promised him a scholarship for next year, but he didn't come through with it. And Bruce was devastated. So meanwhile, he's working um, multiple jobs to make ends meet. He's not able to focus on school. Um, and the coach didn't offer him a scholarship, Bruce came to realize, because he didn't have to, because he knew he had Bruce there no matter what. It was too, he couldn't transfer easily because you have to sit out all the NC2As around, NC2A rules around transferring. So he was, he was, he had him, he was captured and he didn't have to give him anything to stay there. And so the coach used that scholarship to recruit another player. And so, you know, Bruce ends up being stuck there, being totally embittered. And then on top of all this, being injured and um, then being kind of pressured to play through the injury. And ultimately, he had to drop out of college, drop out of the sport. And um, as he said, you know, I was just set so far behind in life. He came out in debt. Um, and that no athlete, no young adult should be set behind like that, he said. That story about Bruce, that is just, I mean, it's devastating. Um, and I think you're right. It's a perfect illustration of status coercion in college sports. And, and we hadn't even been talking about the, so much about the transfer piece. But one of the really sick parts of how this becomes discursively constructed in a kind of justification for the system is that rather than viewing in, in sort of popular discourse, I mean, in the, in the sports media complex around college sport, rather than viewing college athletes as people being fundamentally exploited and coerced, which is what you have, of course, been describing for us here. What happens instead is that we get all these narratives about coaches and how coaches are being victimized by more supposedly more liberal transfer rules, as if they're going to have a little bit more work on their plate. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for them to manage their roster now that they have to juggle the fact that people might be more inclined to leave uh, a horrific working environment to seek a better opportunity, better conditions, better compensation, right? But the people we're supposed to feel sorry for are the coaches. That's absolutely right. I mean, so much of the rhetoric around college sports is just a complete ruse. It's a complete falsehood to sustain the system of, well, exploitation, racist exploitation of um, college athletes to, to convince the athletes themselves and everyone around it, all the, the capital that's invested in it and all the many fans who themselves are deeply invested in the system to sustain the the veil that they are amateurs that they are childlike uh people 
entities who need to be surveilled and monitored and controlled, that they need to be prevented from earning money, um, that they need to be, for some reason, not quite clear to me what the justification is, but they need to be prevented from leaving, from, from exercising their independence and agency to um, go to, like you said, a better workplace. Um, so there's so much rhetoric that has kind of built around this, this system, which is just shown to be completely and utterly hollow, completely false. So one question that I had, and I've gotten this recently as someone who was a D1 swimmer, but like at a very sort of low D1 swimmer, you know, like how do these dynamics that we talk about in the show that you and other scholars have studied sort of, how do the, how do these dynamics impact my experience? And part of it is, you know, I can reflect on my own experiences, but I don't quite have the same sort of um, structural understanding for the so-called non-revenue generating sports and like the Olympic sports in particular. Um, so I was wondering, like, you know, to what extent do you think some of these dynamics um, are also the case and or are different for um, athletes and non-revenue generating sports? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, and honestly, I don't know that I have the full answer to it. And I would be actually quite interested to hear about your experience. I was a D3 swimmer um, at, at um, Kenyon College at a, at a good but Division three school where there was no money involved in the equation. That's what defines Division three. Um, so hmm, how does this play out for those other suits, those other sports that are not bringing in the revenue? You know, certainly some of the same elements of status coercion are there, right? So for those um, athletes that rely on that scholarship to get to school, to you know, attain that college degree, to be able to go to college in the first place and then get the degree and the education and the accreditation that it confers and the ability to leverage that accreditation going forth into their adult life, that's incredibly important. And the power to revoke that, to give it or take that, is quite powerful indeed, right? And so coaches do have that power, um, but it is less acute in those sports, in in part because um, perhaps the you know they're much less funded relative to those rel- uh, gen- revenue generating sports, and so maybe their scholarships don't cover their full education, right? Maybe um, they they don't see the opportunities for for revenue. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to be paid 50 bucks to sign an autograph in the same way that some of the football players might be. And so those opportunities aren't, um, haven't been taken away from them and aren't currently there for them either. And so the, the power dynamics are a bit more muddied, um, in part just because of the, the pedestalization of football and, and to a lesser, but still strong extent basketball as well in our culture. Um, but even still, the power dynamics are still there, right? Whenever a, a boss in a working condition has power to revoke um, your status as an athlete, to revoke your status as a student, as in this case, a subsidized student in a university, um, that's quite powerful indeed. Absolutely. And I just have two kind of brief follow-up points is that one thing that I've been thinking through, and I could be really off base, but one thing that's interesting about a sport like swimming, for example, um, is, and, and I know Kenyon has an, a really great swimming program. I actually like briefly looked into it when I was looking at schools. Um, 
But I know I always got the sense um, at a school where the swimming program was not very good. It was definitely sort of low, you know, low in terms of priority list that we need because people perceived it so poorly that we needed to help the program demonstrate its its importance and kind of demonstrate its validity and legitimacy that like we are a sport that should be funded and kept. So there was kind of a, a buy-in on that way that we were sort of like underdogs in a way, even though we're all, most of us, you know, we were an all white team, pretty much all white team. And most of us, you know, had sort of family money that were helping us pay for college, um, which is obviously different for a lot of other college athletes. But it was still this idea that like you're buying into the program because we need to save it, um, which is sort of its own particular sense of coercion, right? That like, if you're not committed to saving the team, um, then who are you and you shouldn't be on it. Um and then the other thing is, you know, someone who teaches at a D3 school that's kind of been interesting is sort of seeing similarly athletes be very, very dedicated to being athletes, even though, you know, they're not receiving any kind of scholarship. But because, you know, at a school like where I teach, they can still get a really rigorous um, education. But then a lot of them are working, you know, all weekend in order to help pay for the, you know, the bills to attend school. And, you know, they're not getting a scholarship, but they're still producing cultural capital for the school. Um, so that, those are just some things that um, I was thinking about as you were as you were kind of elaborating on your answer there. Yeah, those are really interesting points. You know, on the first point, I, I think what you described as, you know, part and parcel of this broader, I don't know, neoliberal commodification of education is heightened by um, the the commodification of college sports, which is just out of control. And so the other sports, which have been designated as non-revenue generating, even though, in fact, football and basketball are also, more often than not, non-revenue generating, they're, they're capital uh, drains from most universities. But for these other sports, now they're set up to have to prove themselves as worthy. And this is not unlike, say, uh, history departments or romance languages and literature departments or drama departments that are also now having to prove themselves as worthy of investment, of worthy of retention, of worthy of even existing in a university space in which departments and and um, programs are pitted against each other in terms of what they bring to the university, which has only been heightened by um, the immense amount of money that a few athletic programs bring to a very few universities. Absolutely. Um, so one aspect of, of all of these dynamics that we've been kind of we've been getting at, but we haven't dug as directly into uh, is a this question of privilege, right? The, the discourse around the athlete being privileged, which is so much a part of how status coercion can be leveraged ideologically. Yes, but I also want to get into how this intersects with the kind of college sports media. So you write about how college athletes are discursively constructed as privileged, and you cite the Northwestern University football team's 2013, 2013 handbook. And this is just, this is wild stuff, which reads in a section on social media guidelines. And I'm quoting again from your book and, and you quoting the Northwestern University 2013 handbook, the football team. Don't use Twitter as an outlet to complain about how rough your life is. You are getting a college education, traveling to interesting places, getting free athletic shoes and apparel and more. Thousands of people would crawl over glass for the chance to enjoy the opportunities you have, end quote. Uh, 
How does the discourse of so-called privilege sustain the exploitation of college athletes? And to what extent is the college sports media complicit in promoting that discourse? Um, well, in, in brief, it is, I would say that this discourse of privilege has been the primary scaffold upholding this whole system, right? The fact that the, the, the claim that they are lucky and should be grateful for being there. And underlying that, implicit in that contention, is the assertion that they should not complain. And sometimes it's quite explicit, as in those Northwestern Twitter guidelines, um, that they should not complain, that they should shut up, that they should just play, that they should not be political, that they should, and really at the heart, that they should not make any worker rights claims shut up and play. Thousands of people would crawl over glass. They literally told them this, and this is not unique to Northwestern, that thousands of people would crawl over glass to be where you are today. If you don't like it, leave. We see that rhetoric over and over again, not just in football handbooks, but in the media and, and then in among fans, right? The, the common response to athletes who, quote, complain, to athletes who are described as whining when they're making say, claims to worker rights. Um, they're dismissed as whining, as kind of being these privileged brats that are claiming more than they deserve. And they're um, told that, you know, if you don't like it, leave. Um, but of course, <laughs> it, so, so, so this rhetoric has just, is the primary scaffold for this whole edifice, for, for silencing their, their claims to rights not only as workers, but say basic human beings entitled to safe safety, uh, freedom from surveillance. Um, and, and so they're dismissed as, as, as brat, as whining, as overly privileged. And, and so this is used as a tool to silence them. And it uses a tool really in the first place before they even are able to kind of articulate and recognize those claims is used to undermine them to begin with. You know, as I said, many of the athletes that I interviewed, when they got to school in the first place, they felt privileged. They felt lucky because that's what they had been told their whole lives. Um, getting, getting there, in fact, is very lucky. There are so many amazing athletes and getting to that place of privilege is an incredible stroke of luck, as well as one of, of privilege and hard work and incredible dedication and discipline. Um, but the rhetoric of privilege is used to undermine any sense, any analysis of the problems that pervade this edifice. Yeah, I, I mean, you you perfectly articulate how that that ethos of privilege that like people like Nick Saban and I'm not just saying Nick Saban's the only one, literally every coach in um, big time collegiate sport, they just rely on over and over and instill in their players in so many ways. And I think you do an amazing job articulating that as like the primary scaffold of this entire system. I think that's a great way um, to put it. And in your, in your book, you also quote the NCAA's um, 2015 and 2016 Division I manual, which states that, quote, student participation in intercollegiate athletics is an avocation uh, and students, student athletes should be protected from exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises, which is the most 
hypocritical thing I have ever heard to be part of a uh, in an NCAA Division One manual, considering the entire system is a commercial, a massive, big time commercial enterprise. But aside from the almost awe-inspiring hypocrisy of that statement. Can you explain the the overarching kind of paternalism that's embedded in the logic of amateurism that governs college sport and how that ultimately further serves to actually dehumanize and exploit campus athletic workers? Right. Yes. So so in the first place, that that uh, rhetoric around protection from exploitation, right, that was part of this broader ruse of, of amateurism, which has really been kind of exposed for what it is, I think, in, in the past couple of years, um, claiming that the sports agents, right, agents that are coming and trying to recruit athletes away from colleges to make money off of their athletic success, that those were agents of exploitation rather than the universities themselves. So any type of... Um, um way that those athletes might in fact benefit profit from their athleticism that was cast as um of of selling the waters of selling their their the ideal of amateurism as as exploitation rather than what the colleges themselves and the nc2a itself was doing all right so and and embedded through all, all of this as as you say is this rhetoric of paternalism and this is um, kind of goes part and parcel with the, the privilege rhetoric, right? So it's like a two-part, it's a one-two punch. It's like, you're so lucky to be here. You should be so thankful. And there are so many people, by the way, that would take your place if you complain at all. Um, and embedded in that is this notion that we know what's best for you. You don't. And so throughout, you know, if you if you read through, for example, that Northwestern's football man manuals list of Twitter rules, like so many of those quote rules are so profoundly condescending, are so profoundly belittling. And this notion that we, the adults in the room, i.e. the coaching staff and the NC2A, we need to um, tell you what you do because you're too young and perhaps too stupid to know yourself. And so we're going to direct you. We're going to say that you can't earn money from your success because you might misspend it. You don't, you wouldn't know what to do with it, or you would be exploited by some kind of specter of a, a, a dark exploitative agent. Um, that we need to take care of you, that we're a family, right? That we're like in the parental role and we're gonna take care of you and lead you through. Um, and so this kind of paternalist rhetoric is um, profoundly implicated in this process of, well, Again, at the end of the day, it's a process of exploitation um, where they're convincing young people, young people from a very young age, children on up through adolescence and then young adults um, who have been socialized into the system in which they are told again and again that coaches know best and again and again that they need to do what their coach says. They need to be coachable. They need to toe the line. They're told that um, the powers that be know best and they need to either shut up uh, and stop thinking anything anything critical and just do what they say. So one thing that um, I was thinking about as you're as you're explaining the, the 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 paternalism of these power dynamics, and you know one thing 
that it made me think of is that not only obviously do these have implications for athletes who are based in the U.S., like their whole their whole lives are part of their lives, but also for international athletes, right? Because like the NCAA is increased, as far as I know, is increase constantly increasing the number of international athletes who come to the U.S. college system in order to kind of springboard into their careers, right? So like not only do these things have domestic implications, but also international ones, even though this idea of amateurism has been out of, you know, the Olympic and other kind of international um, competitions, right? That, you know, it's an, it really has only been applied to the American context, as far as I know, for the since the 90s. Um, so it's really interesting kind of to think through kind of how the sense of like American sporting paternalism ends up really impacting dynamics all over the world and not just athletes in the U.S. Sure, absolutely. I mean, I, I would strongly suspect that some version of paternalism pervades many different spaces of athleticism um, across the world. But that said, it's certainly another element that contributes to the status coercion that that college athletes face in the U.S. when not only is their access to, say, a college education or subsidized college education or and their access to um, playing the sport that they've worked so hard over the course of their lives to play, but also their, you know, either ability to stay where they are in the U.S. or be deported if they no longer have a student visa. That's yet another leverage of power that coaches can wield um, and and by the way, this was also certainly the case for the graduate students I interviewed, several of whom were not uh, U.S. natives. Um, and they talked about, you know, the the power that the schools and specifically their advisors held over them as as being on student visas um, and the ability to retain that status as an American student. Fascinating. I mean, fascinating and, and really sad and frustrating um, to hear. And, and absolutely, I didn't mean to, to um, I'm really glad you pointed out that, of course, there are forms of paternalism elsewhere in the world when it comes to sports systems. So thank you for that clarification, because I definitely wasn't trying to sort of make, make us this whole case. Um, now, one question, one point that you have talked about that we want to dive into a little more is this one about surveillance and regulation. And in particular, you know, we, we've seen this for a long time, but we've seen this more recently with the spottery EDU beacons and UNC classrooms or the social media rules we already talked about and how these elements are a really core feature of status coercion in college sport. Now, what... It, what are the impacts of these forms of control on campus athletic workers? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are far-reaching and, and really kind of hard to identify effects. You know, on at one level, I think the athletes that I interviewed were so used to being tracked and monitored and surveilled and controlled in this way. But with technology, um, uh, the schools and the coaches' ability to do so is becoming more and more um, sharpened, right? They're, they're able to do so much in broader and deeper ways through uh, apps such as Spotter EDU, which can track their attendance, which can track their movements through the school spaces. Um, and so, I mean, really, how does it affect? Well, it affects students in so many ways, um, especially athletes, again, whose 
whose career is riding on their success in that space where they're performing without pay, right? So their ability, again, to be to play the acme of their career in, in this college space, their ability to be recruited professionally, their ability to get a college degree, um, especially for those who could not otherwise afford to do so, all of that is now, um, you know, in part in the hands of these, well, they're no longer hands, they're like algorithms of the apps, where whether or not they attend class is going to inform their coaches' decisions, perhaps, about whether to play them that weekend, whether to keep them on the team, keep them on scholarship. Um, but of course, this tracking and controlling of students, I mean, it's also part and parcel of the 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 patronizing, the infantilization of student athletes, the the reinforcement of this message that we control you um, and you need to do what we tell you. And this is just a, a technology for doing so. But but the message has long been there and it's a basic part of the system that you need to do what we say. Uh, and we're going to track your movement to make sure. Um, now, of course, this is part of this broader neoliberalization of higher education, which is turning students and student activities and basic student movements through universities into data points, into performance statistics, and ideally for universities and ultimately into revenue if they can do it. Um, but this dynamic is all the more acute when it comes to the athletes themselves, some of whom are direct sources of revenue for those universities. And so when they're even more surveilled and more punitively surveilled, right, punished if they don't conform to the rules, to the expectations, to attend class uh, every day in every way. Um, but of course, all of this contributes to this broader I think really sad kind of losing sight it's, it's it runs counter to the larger goal of what one would hope and maybe this is too idyllic but one would hope that university's goal is kind of nurturing students minds and students bodies fostering their development their their entrance into adulthood their independence their uh activity their thought their analysis but when they are so infantilized, when they are so deeply kind of surveilled and controlled and monitored and punished for stepping a little bit out of line, for oversleeping and maybe being late to class because they got home late from traveling to a basketball game the night before, that is not doing, is not, is running counter to that goal of, of fostering young adults and their bodies and minds. And you and you're gesturing to this like similar role that that we and and yourself have as teachers in institutions of higher education, um, which is similar to the role that we kind of accept um, among coaches. This idea that we are uh, educating, that we are mentoring, that we are supporting um, young young younger or uh, and sometimes not younger students um, to do something later in life. And in the book, you highlight the ways in which abusive coaching is really normalized to the extent that athletes themselves often justify it. And you've mentioned that in this episode. But given the fact that like, we have this similar role to, to um, what coaches are taking on, how do you process the behavior of these coaches and the, the reactions of those players? 
Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think whenever there's a situation, and, and this is really the case for all of the four very different groups that I analyze in this book, whenever there's a situation in which um, people are, in these cases, working um, in ways that promotes the profit and benefit of others, and, and to some extent themselves as well, but much, much less so. So graduate students are who are working for their advisors, and, and their advisors' whole promotion and tenure case and academic careers are predicated on their students' labor, right? Same with coaches. Athletic workers who are working not only for their own, you know, athletic success, but also because they're mandated to, um, they can't quite get to the um, play the pros, play professionally for football or basketball until they play for college, right? And and their coach's success as a coach, millions of dollars could be on the line, is predicated on their athlete's performance, right? So when we have these systems in which more vulnerable people are working for the profit of others. And there are other entities that are profiting sometimes massively from their labor. And yet, they're not recognized as workers. The power dynamics are not recognized as such. There's no one looking over these coaches' shoulders or these graduate students' advisors' shoulders as bosses of other people's labor. Then that is a situation that is just rife with abuse, right? There's, there's, There are no kind of boundaries on what can happen. And that means that abuse can run rampant. Now, are all coaches or graduate advisors abusive? No, absolutely not. But that said, even when coaches, um, you know, enact the levers of power that I talk about in the book, even when coaches, you know, don't play an athlete because um, for the rest of the season, if they decided to be an engineer major, um, and so they can't, they miss practice a couple times a week, that's just accepted as a given. That's not abusive in that world, right? That's just taken as a given. That's the power that that coach wields over him and is expected to wield over him. But when no one is 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 regulating these these bosses' behavior as bosses, there are no rules limiting what they can do really to to the their subordinates then we see a lot of abuse and and it's quite abusive indeed and yet as i said before so many of these athletes because they have dedicated much of their lives to the sport to um to subordinating themselves to the coach who is said to know best um they are also come to expect and accept at least some levels of abusiveness you know as one athlete told me that her coach would sometimes just go off on the athletes, yell, you know, curse at them, get really, really heated and angry. And she said, you know, I, you know, it it was really hard. It wasn't pleasant. But that's just the heat of the moment. That's what's just what you expect from coaches in that situation because they're under a lot of pressure and it's just stressful. They're just letting off steam. And so there's a lot of of internal justification of what would otherwise be characterized as pretty clearly abusive behavior. Yeah, and and I mean, what comes with abuse, of course, like the, you're even focusing here on on the abusive behavior of coaches, and then what goes hand in hand with that are the emotional consequences for the people who are being abused, the athletes. Um, and I, I mean, I come back to this all the time. It's actually, I, I, I really think for anyone who hasn't had a chance to read it, 
Um, Michael Bennett's book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, is just an incredibly powerful testimony of the consequences of playing sport in this context or working as a campus athletic worker and also as an NFL player. Um, and in one of his chapters, which I think the title of the chapter alone tells the whole story, the NCAA will give you PTSD, he says. Um, that's the title of the chapter. And you were talking before, I mean, the one aspect of it is the literal abuse. You're talking about the verbal abuse, sometimes even physical forms of abuse, corporal punishment that occurs in this process via the surveillance and ultimately regulation through corporal punishment. And you also use the word control, right? The way that these athletes are controlled. Bennett says it's just almost a throwaway line in his book, but he's talking to a friend who was another former player. And the friend told him, I'm 32 years old, bro. And I don't know what the fuck I like to eat. And he says that because they've been told what to eat for years, right? Like at every meal, this is what you need to maximize performance because they're being turned into performance machines, right? And, and everything we've been talking about here is just part of this process that is, if you start to look at it, not as like wins and losses or as some kind of incredibly privileged site of opportunity, what we're talking about here is so obviously a form of dehumanization, right? Doing something to people that is just not justifiable in other contexts, which is, I think, what you were getting at in terms of like the sort of abusive coaching is also in another context. You can't treat other people like that. And that's what happens to these athletes is that every part of their lives is regulated to the point that they lose themselves to at least some extent in the process, right? And there's no, there can't be compensation commensurate to that loss. And I mean, I'm glad to say that we've been hearing a lot about mental health for athletes lately, thanks to Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, and many others, right? They've really forced us to confront this conversation more as a society. And that's only a good thing. In your book, you quote a basketball player, Shivante. She says, and I'm quoting here, like it sounds so common sense, but no one ever wants to think of that. We're so quick to watch a game. We're very much into, you're doing me a service. Jump, monkey, jump. Run, monkey, run. I hate how we even speak about pro athletes. And you might say something very ignorant, like, oh, they're terrible. They're a waste or whatever. And you would never know if my aunt died the day of the game. That wouldn't be released to you. You wouldn't know if I'm a cutter. You wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know if I'm bulimic. Like the simplest things you would not know. You wouldn't know if my boyfriend just hit me. My girlfriend's hit me. You wouldn't know if my dad died. All of that kind of thing. And that's throughout a season. And you keep going. Think about it. Think about how many stories you've heard of that happening. You've never heard of it on ESPN. But needless to say, that happens. Someone's lost a parent in college. Someone has been to the ER. Someone has been an alcoholic. Someone's been a drug addict. And I'll end the quote there, although she goes on and on, and it's all riveting, just as riveting as that. Are you surprised that athlete mental health has leapt into the discourse? Or is that something you were expecting given your conversations with the players you spoke to? Oh, absolutely not surprised. I mean, so many of the athletes uh, told me about this sense that, you know, throughout their college career, they came to feel profoundly commodified. They didn't necessarily use that term, though sometimes they did. They talked about being treated like a thing, uh, a prophet making a monkey, right? A performance monkey, as Shavante said. Um, like just some type of performance statistic, right? They were a mode of other success um, and, and really reduced to that. And so there is very much, they, they experience this as, as you, as you described, this process of dehumanization. Um, and 
really, as Chavante's um, quote suggests, that the athletes themselves, in a way, had to go along with it, had to embrace this kind of, at one level, to separate themselves from the hardship of their lives, the things that they are going through day in and day out, to be able to, again, go onto the court that night, that weekend, day in and day out, and perform well, despite all of the human things that they are going through, that the the fans watching them and critiquing them, that their coach watching them and pushing them, that their coach knew about but did not care about, um, they still needed to perform. And so in some ways, you know, we talked earlier about the cognitive dissonance that dissonance that athletes needed to that would need to overcome in order to criticize the system. In other ways, they needed to embrace some kind of dissonance or some kind of disjuncture between putting their their selves, their emotional selves, their their lives aside in order to perform um, and perhaps get critiqued for their performance despite everything that may be going on in their lives. And so in brief, no, I, I couldn't have been less surprised about mental health coming to the fore, though I am very thankful for the people who are bringing it to the fore because what I did learn from the former athletes that I interviewed is how difficult it is to to um, to not enact um, that the discipline to not keep themselves, their lives, their bodies, their hardships secret and separate from their performance. And so, bringing that to the center of the discourse, as Osaka and others have done, is profoundly important. I think it's kind of this paradigmatic shift that we need to have in order to recognize athletes as full human beings. Absolutely. And of course, we totally, we totally support anything that really humanizes athletes. And, you know, I'm so curious to what extent the conversation shifts to, you know, athletes struggle through these mental health things because of the structures that try to control and oppress them. And, and not athletes have mental health issues and therefore they individually need to be seeking out, you know, the help of therapists and whatever. Um, because obviously we want to like avoid the further sort of neoliberalization of mental health, but yeah, you know, jo- Joanna, just to, exactly. Just to, just to add Go on ahead. to that point, that's why I love that frame from Michael Bennett, the NCAA will mm-hmm. give you PTSD, right? Like he's just bringing mm-hmm. it together perfectly. You, you have to talk about mental health, but you cannot divorce it from, as you say, the structure that is systematically producing conditions that are alienating um, and destructive to well-being. I was just going to agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it should also be noted that at the same time, these are young adults who are going through individualized struggles, if, even if they are shaped by the structures around them, right? So they are um, coming out of the closet. Their family is homeless. Um, and they're having to send money home from what little stipend they get, right? There, there are lots of individual struggles that these athletic workers are going through at the same time as the structure itself is also creating its own set of problems and imposing constraints and, and, and giving them, you know, PTSD, as the case may be, as the chapter title states, right? So, so these are full human beings who face so many hardships as so many adults and and young adults do especially during this intense time of of coming into adulthood um which is so much more compounded by um the 
oftentimes abusive structures in which they're expected to perform and perform without complaint. Now let's pivot a little bit to talk about name image likeness, um, which came out obviously after you wrote the book. Um, and, and, and NIL has been really been celebrated by so, so many as a sort of remedy um, to the exploitative uh, conditions in college sport. Now, how do you think NIL will intersect with status coercion? To what extent do you see it as a possible solution? And or are there ways in which status coercion as a theoretical paradigm might actually help us unravel some of the triumphalist discourse around name image likeness? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I do not think that name image and likeness, the, the, the ability to athletes to make money off of their athletic success outside of the universities, that's not a remedy for status coercion in universities, right? That is a, a separate situation, which just simply kind of removes the NC2A's strict levers of control over the whole economic lives of athletes on and off um, university grounds. So it's not a remedy in any way to the type of coercion that I'm talking about. And, you know, we'll see how it plays out, but I could even imagine that in some ways their ability to leverage their success off the field with this new um, ruling could increase the powers of coercion that their coaches wield over them. So, for example, if now, under this new um, system, athletes um, who are successful in uh, football or basketball or what, what have you, um, can get a lot of money on the side by running camps, by the commodification of their likenesses and video games, right? So they have to be successful in order to get uh, capital success in those other realms off university grounds. But remember that their coaches are in full control over that success, over whether they can attain and retain that success in the university landscape. And so Still then, their coach is indirectly um, con controlling their access to success and, and um, the ability to earn money from their success off the field or off the basketball court. Still, um, if, you know, if they decide that they don't want to play them, if they're not going to play because they're not falling in line, because they're complaining, because they're taking a knee um, during the Starship Bagel Banner or what have you. Um, then they may lose their success and therefore lose the ability to leverage that success off the court through the ability to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. So in short, this does nothing to, uh, to address the, the coercive power that coaches can wield over athletic workers. Yeah, and I mean, you, you also mentioned like right off, the, right off the top of the show that coaches also yield an incredible amount of power on their future earning potential by ways of like, for one example, speaking to scouts about um, the, the character of these athletes and, and about what they kind of stand for. In the same context, you can see that same thing playing out to potential endorsers or to potential um, uh, corporations or organizations that will pay um, campus athletic workers for their name, image, likeness. You can see those same things playing out there uh, as well, I think, anyways. That's certainly right. I mean, again, you know, it's hard to say how exactly it will play out, but I could imagine, as you suggest, it, 
it, it playing out in a whole host of ways that in some way kind of perversely and indirectly extending or deepening coaches' power over their success rather than mitigating that power in any real way. Yeah, I, th I think that's why we're such... Um, we're, we're so keen on this idea of status coercion. I think it's such a useful concept for uh, expanding the conversation beyond just just simple economic coercion, which seems to be what what most people out there in the ether actually talk about when they're talking about uh, campus athletic workers. They're they're simply looking at the economic uh, 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 transaction, whereas this idea of status coercion broadens the discussion, I think, a great, um, a great deal. One of the things that we're really interested in this show um, is to talk about agency and to talk about resistance. And one of the chapters in your, in your book, Coerced, talked about these, um, both of these things quite well. And, and we're really interested to get your take um, with all of that, we, everything we've talked about today, it's very clear that agency and resistance and forms of resistance are necessary. So can you, for our listeners, can you explain how you conceptualize resistance in the context of college sport? If you think status coercion in college sport can be reformed and speak to your perspective on the hints of labor organization that we've seen over the past year or so from the hashtag we are united um, to United College Athletic Advocates, to the College Football Players Association, all these brilliant forms of resistance that we've seen. Just if you could speak to some of that as well, that would be wonderful. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think for the case, especially for these workers who, um, say, don't have traditional labor rights, especially for these workers, such as athletic workers, and also graduate students, I should say, who the 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 power that their bosses wield over them is so total, so all-encompassing. They um, that they were still scared to talk to me about their their coaches years later. Um, that the the forms of resistance look different sometimes than uh, the resistance than you might expect. Um, now, of course, what many people in, in you know lay people, lay observers of the sports world say is, well, if you don't like it, you can leave, and you know for for some i mean that feels like the only option and yet that's not a real option um right that's that's the worst case scenario that is what happened for bruce who could no longer play because his shoulder was 95% torn off the bone right his muscle was torn off the bone um exit is is only an option and it is a form of resistance an agency um, in the most extreme of circumstances, because these workers have put so much of their lives, like just in terms of years, so much of their selves, they have given up so much, and they have so much invested in this present and the future of the sport that they've dedicated their lives to, that exit really isn't an option. So if they resist, if they express their agency and resistance while still in the college athletics world, they do so in more indirect ways, um, ways that perhaps protect themselves. So um, that might mean, look like insisting on going to a counseling appointment, um, even if you're at risk for um, not being played that weekend. That might um, look like 
um, speaking out, you know, I mean, that's very, very hard for these athletes, but we've seen it more and more and more. And I hope to see more in the future, but we've seen this kind of upswelling, especially, you know, in the, in uh, last year with COVID when, when these workers were, um, the athletes were quote required for quote in, um, voluntary summer, uh, practices, right. They're, they're never voluntary. Um, um, but when they're required to show up on campus in the midst of a pandemic, we saw athletes speaking out and using sp social media to do so. So there are new forms of organizing. There are new forms of articulating dissent. There are new forms of, or even more minor ways in which they might exert some form of resistance where, uh, for instance, one athlete I talked to, a former athlete, she, um, didn't like her coaches and she felt particularly frustrated by the rhetoric of family. Um, when their care seemed so lacking. And so really for her, her resistance entailed not being buddy-buddy with her coach. She would go in, she would play hard, she would do her work, but she wouldn't engage. She wouldn't, um, she showed that she wouldn't buy into their, we are family, we're here for you, we're going to do whatever we can for you, uh, parentheses, only as much as it benefits us. Um, and so agency and resistance looks like a lot of different things in these situations where um, their agency is so profoundly constrained. Um, now, can college, athlete, college athletics be reformed? Whew, that is a big question, and I honestly don't know the answer. Um, I mean, at heart, I think that we need to take profit out of it. Um, so if no one is profiting off of the labor of athletes, then perhaps it can. Um, does that, you know, is that a reform or is that a dismantling? I'm not quite sure. Um, but it is clear that fundamental change needs to happen. Um, taking away the, the, the profit incentive that some entities have to earn money and big bucks off of the labor, and, and it should be noted off of the sometimes life time injuries that these athletic workers are sustaining in the name of those people's and those entities' profits, right? So that needs to be taken away, fundamentally refigured in order for athletics to be reformed or transformed into something that, um, you know, in which, I mean, I, I was an athlete. I benefited greatly from my career as an athlete, um, but I wasn't exploited like that. Like I said, I was at a division three school and I, I, I was swimming for myself. And when I was no longer swimming for myself, I stopped, I quit and I was free to do so. And, and there was no, um, consequence that I faced for being a student or for being, um, for getting the, the levers of privilege and opportunity that athletes at these revenue generating sports at the top schools get for their athletic performance. Well. Uh, Aaron Hatton, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, as Derek said, I really firmly believe that your intervention, uh, your theoretical intervention, status coercion, is really essential for complicating the discussion about exploitation in college sport. We cannot leave it simply as an economic question. I think if we look, leave it simply as an economic question, it's very easy to be kind of co-opted into a very liberal reformist sort of logic, where as long as we leave it to the free market, 
problem solved. And what you've shown us here today is that the power dynamics at play in college sport are way, way more complicated than just the dollars and cents issue. And we need to take those very seriously. For anyone who has not had the chance, I must recommend if you are serious about thinking through labor dynamics in college sport, you need to check out Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment by Aaron Hatton. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. 